0: Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to Ridge Church. If you don't know me, I'm Dan. I'm one of our pastors here, and I specifically get to pastor in the area of youth and young adults, but I'm excited to be with you this morning or whenever it is that you're watching from, from your couch, from your patio, if the weather is nice, whatever it looks like for you to be joining in our service today, whether it's live on a Sunday morning or another time throughout the week, we want to welcome you to Ridge Church. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us. And if you're a kid all the way up to grade seven, I just want to remind you that Anna, our kids director, has put together an amazing collection of stuff just for you guys so that you don't have to stay and listen to me because it can get a little boring sometimes. Go check out those videos. They're all online. Mom and dad, just go to our website, scroll down to Rich Kids hop right on there. Same thing if you're in JRY. If you're in grade five, six, seven, or 8, go check out the videos. Mr. Harold's teaching today. We want you guys to check that out. But next week on Easter Sunday, we want to let you and all the families know that we're not going to have any kids stuff happening because we want to celebrate together as a whole big family. We're going to rejoice and remember that Jesus died and rose again, and we want to do that all together. So next week, Remember, no kids programming, no kids videos, just bring everyone to watch our service together. So we just wanted to let you know that. But as we hop in today, I just want to invite you in to Holy Week. We've made it to Holy Week, which is a little crazy to think about, right? Here we are in our second Easter in a COVID-19 world, and we're entering a week that lands as incredibly important in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it's incredibly important, not only in the life of ministry of Jesus, but also on the church calendar that we kind of operate our year around. And not simply just based on our staffing or when we do services or those kind of things, but but in the life and rhythm of a Christian, this is a week we mark as important. It's a week we step back and we actually reflect on all that Jesus did in his final week before his crucifixion and resurrection. And it's a really important one, so we're excited to step into it. What I find really interesting is that the four gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all dedicate about around a third of their content to this week. Nearly a third of the content in all of the gospels is all about what happens in this one week. Jesus, who lived around 33 years, a third of what we have written about his life happens in this week. So it must be incredibly important. And it all begins with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is what we're celebrating today. It's what we're rejoicing in today. And, and if you grew up in the church, even just a little bit, you probably know Palm Sunday a little bit, right? It's, it's an important day because it's the day Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem. And we celebrate it because the crowd celebrated Jesus on that day. The Bible tells us that people laid down their cloaks and laid down palm leaves. So if you grew up, you probably have done a craft where you've made a palm leaf to lay down and learned what the word Hosanna meant, which we're going to talk about today. It's an incredibly important day. But I think more than just the fact that it's important day, it's an important turning point in the narrative of scripture, in the narrative of Jesus's life. This is what it's all been leading up to. As one commentator put it, the gospels are all stories of the last week of Jesus's life with extremely long introductions. And whether or not you agree with that, I think it's clear to say that this week is incredibly important. But Palm Sunday specifically is pivotal because in all four gospel accounts, there is a distinct turning of the narrative towards Jerusalem, towards the city that Jesus is going into that's been building and bubbling all the way along way through Luke's gospel, there's this interesting verse in Luke 9, 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, speaking of Jesus, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus, his arrival and entry into Jerusalem is no uh, accident. It's no coincidence. It's not just something that happens to be that day. No, no, no. It's what Jesus has been leading up to. The whole narrative of the story has been leading to that point. It's been building to this week, this moment, this time. And in all four Gospels, we see a retelling of this moment, this day, that's often called the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And I want to read from you what the Gospel of Matthew tells about this story as we look at it together today. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 21. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to read along with us. humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And maybe you recognize that story. I know I sure do. I'm familiar with it. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And for the first time though, he allows himself to be celebrated as the Messiah. If you read the gospels as a whole, you'll notice something very interesting that all the way along as Jesus does miracles, as Jesus heals people, as he opens the eyes of the blind, as he casts out demons, people realize who he is. People proclaim him to be the savior and the Messiah. And Jesus says not to tell anyone. He seems to be kind of keeping things hush, hush. He doesn't want everybody to know about it because it's not yet the time for people to know. But here in this moment, at this turning point in the narrative, he allows people to know. In fact, he welcomes the celebration. He lets a crowd cheer and shout, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's been noted that Jesus comes as king and as Messiah to save and to rule, both and. Not a little of one, not a little of the other. Jesus is entering Jerusalem to become savior and king. And he enters in and allows the people to sing and shout and worship him. And many scholars have pointed out that this entry mirrored the cultural practice of that day, which is when a king shows up, you throw a party. You have a celebration. If someone returns from a battle that's been won or a king is visiting from another place, let there be celebration. Let there be rejoicing. Let there be a big parade where everyone sings or shouts about the greatness of this king who is coming. People chant their glory. Get the war horse, get the squad. Think your favorite sports team, what a championship parade would look like for them. If you're Canucks fan, I'm sorry, we don't know what that's like. But, it, but in this moment, we see that that's what's happening. Many scholars have actually said this is a parody of these things though. Because see, when a king or a victorious general would come in, it would be on a war horse. It would be surrounded by an army with spear in hand to proclaim his power and his inability to be defeated by anyone else. But we see Jesus come in not on a chariot, not with a spear in his hand, not with an army flanking him, but rather on the back of a colt. That is a baby donkey. And you need to know, it says in the text, this was no accident. Jesus chose to do this very specifically because he knew there was a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 in the Old Testament that points to the fact that the Messiah of God was going to come into Jerusalem in this fashion. It was no mistake and it was no coincidence that Jesus chose to ride in Jerusalem that way. He was not hiding who he was in this situation. The text itself tells us that Jesus did this and it tells us of that prophecy and it tells us that Jesus chose to fulfill, of it, fulfill it. And the prophecy is this, it's a beautiful image of Jesus and his nature and his paradoxical nature. Jesus is a paradox and paradox is a word that's defined as a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or a proposition that when investigated or explained further can prove to be well-founded or true. Something that on first hearing you go, wait, those two things can't exist together. How can that be? I love the prophecy from Zechariah Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is humble and mounted on a donkey. He is the king who is glorious, yet he is humble and comes gently. And it shows us what Soren Kierkegaard, the early philosopher, called the absolute paradox who is Jesus? When he considered who Jesus was, that was what he called him. Jesus is powerful, so powerful he can calm a storm or cast out demons, and yet he is gentle. Look at how he interacts with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Look at how he interacts with children, with kindness and gentleness. He is glorious. Think of the transfiguration when his face shone and his disciples fell before him and worshiped him and wanted to set up a tent and stay there because it was so glorious. It was so beautiful. It was so powerful. And yet he's humble. He has meals with prostitutes and sinners. And they welcome him because he's kind and humble. Jesus is full of grace when he sees a woman who's been caught in adultery. He refuses to throw a stone at her. He is full of grace, but he is also full of truth. He tells her to go and sin no more. He is fully God. He is fully holy and without sin. He is before all things, as the book of Colossians tells us, but he is also holy man. He is fully God and fully man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, we call it in Christianity. He is the lion who roars with power over sin and Satan and death and claims victory as the lion of Judah. And yet he is also the lamb who was slain for our transgressions. Jesus is a walking paradox. There's so many aspects of the nature of who our king is that make it seem like, how could those things be true at the same time? And yet they are. Jesus refuses to be categorized or boiled down to one single point or one single aspect of his nature and essence. And we see one of the ways this plays out in this story, in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He is not one-dimensional. As Timothy Keller, a pastor, puts it in his consideration of this passage, Jesus is coming in this moment to rule and he is coming to save. But Jesus does not do this by taking power and killing. He does it by coming to lose power and give up his life, by losing power and dying. See, the reason Keller notes this is because that would have been the expectation of the crowd as they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Remember, Hosanna means save us. It's not just a friendly affirmation towards God of God, you're awesome, God, you're great. No, 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 it's a crying out. It's saying, save us. The people want Jesus to save them and they're seeing him fulfill these prophecies, but they have an expectation of what they think saving means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And they knew what they were saying. This was not something that simply rolled off the tongue easily. It was not something that had not been pre-thought about. This is a quote from the Psalms of the Old Testament, from Psalm 118. It's a messianic promise from the Old Testament that the people are now crying out towards Jesus of Nazareth. They knew what they were saying. It's not a pleasant phrase. It's not just something that slips off the tongue easily. It's not just something that's easy to chant. It's quoting scripture and inviting Jesus to be the Messiah, the King, and for, them, for him to save them. But the problem is this. The crowd that day, just like you and I, want God to save us, but we want him to save us based on our expectations. We want God to save us, but we want God to save us based on our expectations. It's been a year where many of us have had expectations that have not come to fruition. I took a vacation last week and I had a few days off. And in the midst of the busyness of the last year, I finally stopped for a couple of days. And what I ended up being was angry, and irritable, and unkind, and impatient. I was rude and cruel to the people around me, particularly my own family, and I couldn't seem to figure out what was going on. I just wasn't okay. But the more I think about it and process it and pray through it, the more I've realized that what I could cast off as just being grumpy and tired for a couple days is actually a result of me having expectations of God that God didn't meet. We moved to Maple Ridge a year and a half ago and I had expectations about what it would be to move to a new city. We had expectations about what it would look like to live here. I had expectations last March about how long a lockdown would last. I had expectations this summer about what my life would look like in fall. I had expectations this Christmas about what Christmas was going to look like for me. I had expectations about what this new season would look like and all my expectations have crashed this year. Everything I thought I could be in control of and handle and take care of on my own, it hasn't gone that way. And all my expectations that I place not only on myself but on God have led me to be frustrated and disappointed because I want Jesus to save me, but I didn't want him to do it that way. I want Jesus to save me, but I want him to do it based on my terms. I want him to do it in what I think I need in what I feel like would make me healthy or comfortable or safe or whatever it may be. But I heard a pastor recently say that our level of spiritual maturity is best indicated by how we respond when our expectations are not met. Let that sink in for a minute (laughs) because I know it kind of hit me in the gut. The best indicator of our spiritual maturity is is how you and I respond when our expectations are not met. And it's convicted me over the last couple of days. It has brought me to my knees in prayer before God to say, God, I'm sorry for my expectations that I've placed on you. And the people there on Palm Sunday were no different. Our level of spiritual maturity is indicated by how we respond when our expectations are not met. And I wonder, what are the expectations that you have and how do you respond when they're not met? What happens when you thought dinner would be ready when you got home from work, but it's not? What happens when you thought you would have a weekend to relax, but then your spouse needs help with something with the kids? What happens when you thought this was gonna be your job, this was gonna be your career and a pandemic has destroyed all of it? What happens when your expectations are not met? What do you meet it with? Anger, frustration, yelling, isolation, running away from problems? What expectations are you putting on God that God has not promised to fulfill. We show how mature we are spiritually by how we respond when our expectations are not met. And the people there on Palm Sunday were no different than you and I. You're not alone in that. John's account of Palm Sunday indicates there's three groups of people who were present at the triumphant entry of Jesus. Firstly, there was the crowd. There was a number, hundreds, probably thousands of Jewish people who had traveled to Jerusalem because at that time in the Hebrew calendar, it was the festival of unleavened bread and it lead it up to the Passover feast. It was a very important time in the Hebrew calendar. They were there for a spiritual experience. They were there for a spiritual experience, and they saw Jesus coming and fulfilling prophecies, and they wanted to see what would come next. We also hear that the locals were there. The people who had seen the ministry that Jesus had done in the region of Galilee, the people he had healed most notably and most recently, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, had followed Jesus to this point. This was not the bandwagon fans. They were not the people who hopped on at the very last minute. These people have seen what Jesus is doing and they have followed him to Jerusalem. And finally, there's a group of religious leaders there. There's a group of Pharisees and Sadducees who are watching Jesus and they're the power center in Jerusalem. And they see Jesus in coming and fulfilling these prophecies, doing miracles and changing people's lives and all these things. And they're concerned about this guy's influence. They're concerned about the way he is taking away attention and power from them. And in some way, shape, or form, they all wanted to see what happened next. Not just because they were interested, but because they had expectations of what Jesus ought to do. Perhaps the crowd who was there was waiting to see if the prophecies really were coming true. That that after all their pilgrimage. Pilgrimages, after all their worship, after all their praying, after all their longing for a Messiah to come, here they were in Jerusalem in this moment. And now this man, Jesus, is fulfilling biblical prophecies. And maybe this is the moment and Rome is oppressing us and maybe he's going to overthrow them. Maybe we're going to be saved and we're going to get power back. Our kingdom's going to be restored. We'll have power. I wonder how many in the crowd felt like being saved meant getting power. And I wonder about some of the locals who had followed Jesus from the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem, who had heard that Jesus could fix your problems. Jesus can heal what's wrong with your life. Jesus can heal blind people. He can cast out demons. He can do these things. We heard that he can even raise people from the dead. And if he can do that, well, I've got some problems. Maybe I'll come and maybe Jesus could fix those problems. Maybe Jesus is going to do a big miracle in Jerusalem, and I want to be a part of it. I want to receive some of that miracle because I've got problems. And if Jesus can fix the dead guy's problems, he can probably fix mine. I wonder how many of the locals who had followed Jesus felt like being saved meant getting their problems fixed. And then you have the religious leaders who see Jesus coming, who sense his influence, who have interacted with him all throughout his ministry. And they seem to welcome Jesus to join their ranks, to submit to their authority, to become one of them. If Jesus had done this kind of thing, that's all good, but you play by our rules. We're in charge here. Sure, you can come, you can be a religious leader, but don't mess with the status quo. Don't pretend like you have more power or spiritual authority than any of us. We're the spiritual authority. We are the religious leaders. We're the ones who make the calls here. Don't show up here and pretend like you have more influence than you do. We are in control. For the Pharisees, being saved meant being in control. They need to grasp control. See, everyone was crying out in that moment, Hosanna, save us. But the problem with that is they all have a different idea of what salvation means. They all have a different idea of what it means to be saved. And Jesus, as he's riding in, we hear this interesting account that none of the other gospels give, but I think it's so important to reflect on for just a minute. In Luke 19, here's what it says Jesus is doing as he goes in and as the people cry out, save us with their expectations on him. Luke 19, starting in verse 41. When Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He said, that would come in the future, but there's a really interesting point there. I wonder why is Jesus crying here? Why is he being celebrated and worshipped, rightly so, as the king? Is he tearing up, weeping, distraught over this city? Is it because he loves the people in front of him and he knows what's coming on Good Friday? Probably Was it his frustration or indignation with the religious show that meant nothing to God if it was not going to be followed through with true following of Jesus? Maybe, but I think that first thing Jesus says actually reveals a lot about his heart. As he weeps, Jesus says this, would that you, even you, known on this day the things that make for peace. As the people cried out, save us, Jesus begins to weep, and he almost seems to say, if you realized what it will take to save you, do you realize what it means to be saved? Because it's not a political victory. It's not having more control. It's not having all your problems fixed. It's the cross. It's the sacrifice that I'm going to go and pay on your behalf. And I wonder if Jesus wept as he rode towards Jerusalem, not just for a week of feasting and teaching, but for the very path that would lead him to the cross, where he would be nailed and he would suffer and he would die on behalf of each one of us. I wonder if he wept because he knew that even as people cried, save us, save us, save us, that he would not meet their expectations. That their expectations that they placed on him that they said, save us, but do it this way. Save us, but not like this. Save us, but don't make us uncomfortable. Save us, but don't offend us. Save us, but don't ask me to change. He knew he wouldn't meet their expectations. We know this because immediately following the triumphant entry, where does Jesus go? He goes to the temple and begins flipping tables. And I don't think this is just because Jesus is angry. Please don't ever use this story as an excuse to be a jerk. It's not one. The first thing Jesus does is goes to the temple and begins flipping tables and cries out that his father's house has become a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. But that's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to show up, he should begin a battle with Roman soldiers, right? Get all my Jewish friends, we're going to overthrow the Roman government. Let's take over. This is our city. They don't get to tell us what to do. We don't have to submit to them. We're going to take back power for ourselves. Or maybe if he's not that kind of Messiah, maybe he's more peaceable. Maybe he'll set up a political office and he'll set up a debate against a leading Roman leader, or he'll make a YouTube video complaining about all the unfair things the Roman government is putting them through. He'll start recruiting volunteers and putting up posters all around town. Okay, maybe not like that. Maybe he'll get together for a photo op. He'll get together with the other religious leaders and say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the newest and coolest religious leader come to me and I'll teach you what it means to be successful. Come to me and I'll teach you what it means to get God to love you. Or maybe he'll perform a big miracle. Maybe he'll bring the little miracles that he was doing all around Galilee and now he's in the center point. So let's get him healing everybody, fixing everything, making every problem better. No, what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple and he says, this is not what the temple was meant to be. It's not a place to abuse people financially. It's a place to connect with God. Jesus flips the script and surprises us with the way that he is king and the way that he saves. The people cried, save us. And Jesus says, okay. But what you need to be saved from is happening inside, not out there. What is needing to be saved from is not an out there problem. It's an in here problem. He forces the hand of everyone watching as Tim Keller puts it. He in the temple after the triumphant entry when everyone has cried, save us, save us, save us. Jesus says, okay, I will save you. Here are your options. Crown me or kill me. Crown me as king and submit and obey because I've created you with a purpose and it's not what you're living out right now. Or kill me. I am not interested in being liked, Jesus says. And Jesus says, I will save you if you want to be saved, but this is what it looks like. Jesus did not come to be liked. He did not come to be popular. He did not come to calmly sort things out. He didn't come to build himself as a political leader or create a guerrilla attack on the Roman empire. He came to be king. Jesus came as savior and as king. He will not be one or the other. He will not be just Savior. He is Savior and King. We cannot take only part of Jesus. You cannot say, I welcome you, Jesus, as my Savior, but do not pretend to be my King. I welcome you, Jesus, as my helper, but you have no right to be my Lord. Come in, comforter, but stay out, conviction of sin. Come in, one who makes me feel warm and fuzzy when I'm struggling, but stay out, If you would ever challenge my idols, I'll take some comfort. I'll take some encouragement when I'm down. I'll take strength when I feel tired. I want all those things. I want all those things. I even have Bible verses to quote that makes me feel like I deserve them. And I'll definitely take some blood. I'll take your blood from the cross. Jesus is fire insurance because I want to go to heaven when I die. And as long as I've prayed a prayer or raised my hand or done the right steps or show up at church, then I'm getting into heaven. But don't touch my money. Don't touch my sexuality. Don't touch this part of my life. Don't tell me what to do, Jesus. Die on the cross for me to save me. That's fine, but don't pretend like you get to tell me what to do. But see, on Palm Sunday and all the way through Holy Week, as Jesus goes from place to place and has discussion after discussion, we see that Jesus does not provide us with this option. He does not provide us with an option where he says, yeah, 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 receive me as Savior, but don't worry about the kingship piece. Sure, I'll come and save you like you cried on Palm Sunday, but don't worry about obedience or following me or being formed or being changed by my grace. Don't worry about any of that. Jesus does not give us that option. He is a confrontational king and he will not allow us to sit quietly by and receive only part of who he is. Flannery O'Connor, an incredible writer and poet from the 20th century, writes this. The truth does not change based on our ability to stomach it. The truth doesn't change based on your ability or my ability to stomach it. If we believe in God and if we believe in Jesus as our Lord, he will offend us. He will call us to things that are uncomfortable. He will call us to things that are scary. And he will not meet all our expectations. But the truth does not change based on our ability to stomach it. So often, though, we approach Jesus based on our expectations of what God should be and do. Okay, I'll believe in God if my life gets easier. I'll believe in God and follow him when my kids are more well-behaved. I'll believe in God and truly follow him when the government's not being so unfair with restrictions. But here's the truth we need to know today that is presented on Palm Sunday. God is not defined by our expectations of him. I know that seems obvious, but let me say it one more time. God is not defined by our expectations of him. Jesus comes and he doesn't give us what we expect, but he does give us what we need. Jesus comes and he does not give us what we expect or demand or feel entitled to, but the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is that he gives us what we actually need. They expected Jesus to come in and sit on a throne, but instead Jesus came to hang on a cross. They expect Jesus to come in and take life from the powerful few, but instead Jesus comes and gives his life as a ransom for many. They expect Jesus to seize power and give out glory and a position to his followers. But Jesus came to relinquish power and invited his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. He did not come with a weapon to strike down, but to be struck down by the weapon of the cross. Jesus does not meet our expectations, but he meets our needs. That is the promise of Palm Sunday. We celebrate Palm Sunday as triumphant, not because Jesus fixes everything that's going on out there. Jesus does not meet the expectations of that crowd no more than he will meet your or my expectations or demands on him. Jesus is God. He does not owe us anything, but he loves us so much that he would give us everything. For the crowd that day, They had expectations on him. But we call Palm Sunday triumphant because Jesus came not to fix our circumstances, but to heal our souls, the very core of who we are. The gospel says we die with Christ and we are raised to new life. In the words of C.S. Lewis, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. Jesus isn't nearly as interested in fixing your circumstances, your body, your financial situation as he is in healing your soul. All those things matter, but the soul has to come first. All those things Jesus cares about, but he always goes to the root first. Jesus won't stick a Band-Aid on our sin and our pain and our brokenness. Flannery O'Connor again writes this, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. Grace is a free gift of Jesus. And Jesus loves us as we are, but because of how much he loves us, he refuses to leave us as we are. There's a sort of whiplash that happens in Holy Week. In our mode of devotionals and how many of us read, which is all good, most of us read small chunks of Scripture at a time, but if you open any of the Gospels and just read the whole narrative of Holy Week, there's almost a sort of like whiplash that happens how could you go from Palm Sunday, crowds chanting the blessedness of Jesus coming into the city, that he is king, that he is a Lord, that he is the promised Messiah, to a few days later, chanting, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. And scholars debate whether or not the same exact people were in the crowd on Palm Sunday and were in the crowd on Good Friday, but if Peter... Jesus' best friend could deny him, I don't think it's that far off to say the crowd could do the same. If when Jesus didn't meet their expectations, the chants turned from Hosanna, blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify, crucify, we don't want him, could happen to each one of us. But the invitation of Palm Sunday is not to place expectations on Jesus. It's to receive Jesus, not as we wish, but as he really is. Not as we expect, but as our savior and as our king. Not as we would prefer, but in the reality of the paradox of Jesus's life, lion and lamb, God and man, glorious and gentle. Not as a ticket into heaven when we die, but as the Lord over all creation, including ourselves not as a friendly genie in a bottle to make wishes with when we feel stressed out, but as a founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus did not come to save us in the way that we expect, but he came to save us in the way that we need. Philippians 2 says this. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant Our Savior and our King, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, the invitation to you today is stop clinging to your expectations of Jesus. Stop clinging to what you expect from God. Open your hands and receive what you need. Receive Jesus, not as we wish he was, but as he really is. As we cry out, just like the people in the crowd that day, whatever kind of year, week, month, day, moment you're having right now, as we cry out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Would we let go of the grip that says we need to be in control of how that needs to be done? Would we release that control and say, Jesus, save me? Because only you can save me not in part, but in whole. You are my Lord and my Savior. You are my sacrifice that, that purchased me, purchases me eternal life, and you are also my Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we confess to you right now that in our sin and in our expectations, we would much rather use you as a ticket to heaven use you as a savior, and reject you as Lord. We would much rather have you fit into our expectations or our definitions or our theologies or our whatever it may be so that we can just feel comfortable. God, we confess how quick we are to forget that the call to follow you is not simply to pray a prayer or to think the right thing but rather, Jesus, it is to lay our lives before you, a living sacrifice. Jesus, help us right now, in this moment, maybe it's for the first time, maybe it's for the first time in a long time, to give our lives to you wholly. Jesus, we give our lives to you. We give our lives to you as our Savior. We give our lives to you as our Lord. Help us to live into that reality, not just today, not just in Holy Week, not just around Easter, but in every moment of every day. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.